They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we, have not, we, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see. Not only eyes to see you but to see ourselves, to to face hard truths about ourselves. Show us any unrighteousness within us, not so that we can despair, but so that we can remember that our hope is in your Son alone. Show this to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Surely you've had the experience of going to a new doctor for the first time. And you know when you go to the doctor, one of the questions that they are going to ask you on the form is, what is your family health history? And they don't ask this question to you because they just really are looking for a great conversation starter. Uh, They're not trying to be nosy. They want to know about your parents' health and your grandparents' health because there are so many conditions that are genetic, right? So if your father had heart disease, the chances are, you could get heart disease, and they need to be on the lookout for that, right? If your father has diabetes, well, you could as well, and so on. And, and it doesn't just relate to health, necessarily, our connection with our parents, right? I, I think as a young man, I spent most of my life thinking I was a very different person from my dad. I just remember my dad being kind of an angry person. That was sort of how I remembered him. Now, it turns out I was just a bad son. <laughs> but I, I thought of my dad in that way. And now here I am. I'm almost to the age when I remember my dad best. I remember my dad when he was in his late 30s best. And I'm, I'm overlapping with him now. And, and now when I sing, I hear his voice. And uh, I, I hear him when I try to put people at ease in conversations. I remember that my dad did that with people. And he had a way with people. Um, you know, I see my father's formative influence on the way that I parent and even the way I get angry at my kids. I hear the things that he said. Uh, and I suspect, you know, if you knew your father, then you may see the same thing for yourself, right? Our father leaves an imprint on us one way or another. Um, this morning's passage is an argument about parentage. Um, who is your father? What is he like? And what, as a consequence, should you expect to be like? 
What aspects of your spiritual life should, should be connected to who your spiritual father is? And what really happens here is an argument. You're looking in on an argument this morning between two parties. You have Jesus on the one hand, you have the Pharisees on the other hand. And so because this is an argument, my my approach to this passage is really just to look at two things this morning, two parts. The first thing I want us to do is just track the conversation, follow the argument that Jesus is having, because Jesus is is using a tightly argued, argued section here in order to sort of debate with the Pharisees. And they follow his argument, and when they respond, they're responding to his argument, and they're doing it substantively, which we'll see in a moment. But then, second, I want to ask the so what question. You know, you hear the argument, you hear the response, so what? What does this matter? What does this debate over parentage show us about Jesus? What does it tell us about the Jews that he's arguing with? And what does it tell us about ourselves this morning? What is this, what's this all about? Why would John even include this for us to read here 2,000 years later? Hopefully we'll, we'll get that in the second point though. But, but first this morning, we have the making of the argument. Now, sometimes arguments make people nervous. If you've ever been uh, at a, there, you know, there are rules when it comes to family gatherings, you know, and you're supposed to, the rule is you're not supposed to talk about politics or religion. In other words, you're not supposed to have anything substantive to say when you get together with your family. Uh, but if you ever should have been at a family gathering where maybe a substantive argument or discussion did come up, maybe you've been in one of those situations where you go, oh man, this is getting awkward. This is getting difficult. <laughs> Uh, I remember being at Thanksgiving one year and there was a discussion happening and it was a heated discussion. And I just remember at one point, uh, one of the uh, uh, statesmen of the family got nervous and said, we have to stop. We have to stop. We can't talk about these things. Um, You get nervous when an argument happens. So arguments, though, depending on your background, arguments maybe are unhealthy. Maybe they're mostly just explosive screaming matches. Hopefully that's not the case. But but maybe that's what you think of when you think of arguments. Um, But then also there are very engaging arguments. There are the sort of conversations that you need to have so that you can work through things. And and arguments are meant to be a healthy thing. There are things that anybody can have. Jesus has arguments. And it's not sinful. In other words, Jesus shows us it's not sinful to have an argument. Arguments are important. They're how we work through issues. They're how we have live a reasonable life where we make sure that we actually believe things that are true and good and, and accurate. Well, in, one, in logic, one of the things that you're taught is that an argument is a structured line of reasoning, at least at its best. <laughs> an argument is a structured line of reasoning where the conclusion follows from the things you said at the beginning of it. So if you know how to argue well, then you will communicate clearly what you believe up front, and then the conclusion that follows if your premises are true. And so the the classic argument, if you say, ah, that sounds too technical, just listen. The classic argument that everybody in logic class learns is, is the first premise, all men are mortal. Maybe you've heard this before. All men are mortal. Second premise, Socrates is a man. Therefore, it follows that Socrates is mortal, right? So if the statement all men are mortal is true, and if the statement Socrates is a man is true, then it follows that Socrates really is a mortal man. He can die. That's an argument. 
That's an argument. That's structure, just like an argument. So on the one hand, you have this argument. On the other hand, if you want to argue against what was just said, then you have to take issue with one of the first two statements, right? So um, maybe you'll argue that, no, not all men are mortal. Maybe you can think of a man who was not mortal. Now, from a Christian worldview, I don't have a problem with that. I think we can think of a man who was not mortal, uh, in one sense at least. Um, Or... You may take on the second point and say, no, Socrates isn't really a man. See, if you pull his face down, he's a robot. I can prove that Socrates isn't a man. So, so if you make the argument, then, then you would show that it's not necessarily true that Socrates is mortal. If you took on one of those first two premises, right, you'd have to find some other way to prove that Socrates isn't immortal. Maybe this argument just isn't good. Why do I mention all this? Why am I giving you a crash course in logic? I'm doing it because Jesus is making an argument here. And he's making an argument that you need to follow. You need to think about what's happening. Think, at the, think about the context. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. He's arguing with these Jewish religious leaders. And the argument's about who he is and what authority he has. And what he's just done, though, is he's turned this to be about the Pharisees at this point. Why are they arguing the way they're doing? Why are they saying the things that they're saying? And part of Jesus' argument has been that his heavenly father bears witness about him. And then at the end of the section, he said, I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. So then they make this assertion that Jesus is intent on disproving. They say, Abraham is our father. That's where we started off this morning. They say, Abraham is our father. And that's, that's it. They don't give an argument. They just say it. They just assert it. And so Jesus responds to their assertion, and his response is the argument that's before us here this morning. So I'm going to read what Jesus says. This is his substantive response to their claim that Abraham is their father. So listen, he says, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Now, that is a tightly compacted argument all wound together. Let's unspool it just a little bit. I'm going I'm to summarize it in the logical form, the, the way that I did with the Socrates is a man illustration, right? So here's, here's Jesus' first premise. This is what Jesus believes. And if it's true and the next thing's true, then they are not Abraham's children. What's the first thing Jesus says? Abraham's children do the work of Abraham. That is, that's a supposition Jesus has. Abraham's children do the work of Abraham. And his second premise is this. The Pharisees do not do the works of Abraham. That's, that's the two premises. If those things are both true, then the thing that follows is also true. Therefore, the Pharisees are not Abraham's children. So that's how Jesus works this out. So if it's true that Abraham's children do his works... And if it's true that the Pharisees don't do the works of Abraham, then it follows that they are deceived about being Abraham's children. By the way, I love that Jesus put it so starkly because they really can't engage with him on his level just by raw emotion. They can't just get angry at him. There are people listening in. There's an audience here. You have to deal with these things on the level. This is an intelligent conversation that they have to engage in if they're going to keep up with Jesus and if they're going to be able to save face. So 
How do they respond to this careful argument Jesus makes? You see their response in verse 41. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. How do they respond? They don't contest the claim that Jesus makes that they're, that he, that they're trying to kill him. They don't argue against that. They don't say, oh, that's not true. I, I fully expect this, by the way. As you're reading it, you think, it's time for, G- for them to say, no, we wouldn't try to kill you. What? <laughs> that's silly. <laughs> or why would we do that? You know, we, we're, we're good people. They don't argue that at all. They, they can take a completely different approach here. They, they attack the first premise of Jesus' argument, not the second. The first premise of Jesus' argument was Abraham's children, children do the works of Abraham. And they say, no, no, we, you don't have to do the works of Abraham to be Abraham's child. They say, you're wrong about that. They, they basically argue that you can live out of step with Abraham and still be Abraham's child. Right? As long as you physically came from him, as long as you have a genetic connection with the man, then you get to say you're his child. And then they elevate their argument even more. They say, not only are we Abraham's children, but we're really God's children, right? They take it even a step further than that. And so their argument is, it doesn't matter if we do the works of Abraham, as long as we're sure we physically, genetically came from Abraham. Now that is, of course, unacceptable, Because what does it do? It sets the spiritual bar so incredibly low, right? The bare minimum of life is just about where you came from. And all that matters is the externals of your life. Is that really what what they think? And and it certainly is. And so, and you see that that Jesus perceives that in verse 42, because he presses back. Now here's the argument. He made his argument. They gave their response. They disagree with the first premise. And Jesus takes a shot at him in verse 42. He says, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. So Jesus is saying there is more to being a child of Abraham than just genetics. Abraham was a man of faith. Abraham was a man of love, says Jesus. But the Pharisees have neither faith nor love. They have neither of these things. They have no familial resemblance to the man they claim as their father. And by the way, Paul does this in in Romans. Paul makes a similar argument. He says, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. That's from Romans chapter 2. So so Jesus here is making a point that Paul picks up later in Romans 2. So the biblical approach to our spiritual life veers away from these externals, the sort of things that we may be tempted to really put our hope in. Uh, Steers us away from externals, steers us away from genetics, steers us away from appearances, steers us away from the superficial things that sit on the surface that we may be tempted to content ourselves with. Instead, biblically, Jesus continually drives people to the matters of the heart. Now, we don't get another response from the Pharisees at this point. Instead, Jesus keeps going. He moves, their, moves to explain their refusal. He basically says, I know what's underneath that's keeping you from actually listening to me and taking this to heart. He says, you don't have an open mind is kind of what he says. 
He says, you do not understand what I say because you cannot bear to hear my words. You may hear accusation in Jesus' words. I don't know. It would be interesting to, if I took a poll. Does this sound like Jesus is accusing them? But, but to me, it sounds like compassion. It sounds like Jesus almost pities them, that, that they can't hear and that they, they don't hear. Um, that they, they, they can't bear to hear something that doesn't flatter them. All they can hear is things that make them sound good and everything else just sort of gets filtered out. And don't we all have that problem to one degree or another? Um, you know, it's really easy to hear compliments from people. It's really hard to hear critical things from people. It's really hard to believe bad things about ourselves. You know, we do tend to sort of look at ourselves as the heroes. We sort of color our motives in a positive light when we think about our lives. Um, very rarely um, will we take a real honest look at ourselves and say, wow, I am in terrible shape. <laughs> that does not tend to be our our normal way of approaching things. Our gut instinct is usually to blame others and think that we just haven't been treated very fairly. We can have a list of excuses for why our life has turned out the way that it has. But then Jesus, Jesus reinforces this claim that there will be a family resemblance. He, he goes back to this again. He says there needs to be a family resemblance here in the way people live in relation to their father. He says the, the, the behavior of the Jewish leaders is in keeping with somebody but it's not in keeping with God or, or with Abraham. He says, but they do have a very curious family resemblance. And their family resemblance is not flattering. Because it's a resemblance with the devil. Because all of this began at the beginning with their assertion that God is their father. And Jesus has spent the majority of this passage demolishing that assertion. They cannot live with this illusion about themselves. And by the way, God doesn't want you to live with that illusion about yourself either. We'll, we'll get to this in a moment. But he wants us to see ourselves truly. He doesn't want us to just draw an image on our own hearts of what we think and what we hope we are. He wants us to realistic, realistically ascertain ourselves think about ourselves who are we really who is our fa- who is our father really if you were to look at yourself and look at your life and look at the way you live don't lie to yourself tell yourself the truth see one, pre- pe- one problem people have with the, with this question of of how you how do you end an argument is one of the one of the problems a lot of people have they know how to start arguments right arguments are really easy to start uh, they're really hard to finish and they're hard to finish well um, the best arguments I've ever had ended with either me or the other person say, you've really given me something to think about. I, I've even had arguments where one person said, I actually changed the way I think now. I actually think differently because we had this conversation. Those are the best. That's the ideal when you have a conversation because, you want, because when you have an argument, you have two people who both see things and one of them, if they're seeing different things, Hopefully, sees things more clearly than the other. So you want to be enlightened. You want to know more. You want to have your mind changed if you're wrong. And the problem is people don't know how to do that. Usually people take it personally when, a, when an argument happens. And so oftentimes it's very difficult if you start to take a disagreement personally. It's really difficult to get out of that to where you go, you know what? I know this is about the issue. This is not about me. And... But that really is the ideal. We want to be sharpened by someone else. We want to be sharpened by somebody who's thought things through. And this argument ends with Jesus having his say. 
and deeply offending them. <laughs> um, if your idea of Christian love is to avoid offending people, then you have to look at a passage like this and say, Jesus didn't have that kind of love, did he? If that's what love is, is to not offend because Jesus tells them what they need to hear and it's not something that is their favorite. You know, they don't leave there going, you know, that's my favorite guy. That guy that just told me all these bad things about myself. Nobody leaves an argument that way. And yet at the same time, that's what he did. He deeply offended them. So it doesn't end in the ideal way. It doesn't end with them going, Jesus, you've given us something to think about. It was a blessing to talk to you. Good day. (laughs) That's not the way it goes. We'll see more what happens after this in the coming weeks. But they don't take the correction. They don't take the correction. But the first point this morning is that we just need to understand the flow of the argument. We need to understand Jesus' point. Jesus takes them to the heart and gets them away from the superficial things. Now, the point, of course, is there should be a family resemblance, right? If we are God's children, and if we have the attitude that the, that, that the devil, of the devil, that we ought not to think that we still have some claim of spiritual authority, we, we, we really can't. We cannot have that heart attitude if we are God's children. We need to be able to look at ourselves and say, oh, no, 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 no. This is a person in need of God's grace. But second this morning, we have the, the meaning of the argument. You've seen the argument. You've seen how it, it goes together. You've seen sort of how they respond to it. But what's the point of all this? The point of this is not to fight. It's to understand Jesus, and it's, and it's to understand the Pharisees better. Uh, the first thing we learn about this, from this passage is the ignorant self-righteousness of natural man. This is what our hearts are like apart from the grace of God. Because, see, these people don't realize that their fleshly relationship to Abraham does nothing. It's not that this is something they just hold up and sort of delusionally say, even though they know it's not true. They really believe these things. They're, they're blind to spiritual things, so they fixate on the physical things. Because the physical things are all they have. It's all they have. This is not just a problem with the Pharisees. This is not just a problem that is, that is left to 2,000 years ago they had issues with focusing on externals, but today, here we are in 2020, and we don't have problems with that. Now, there are, many, there are many people believing themselves to be Christians who have a similar problem, right? They know that their name is on the roll of some church somewhere that they don't even attend. Um, people who feel confident, in fact, you know... One of the things my kids would run into in school, they'd, they'd say, hey, are you, are you a Christian? And this other kid would say, yes. And they'd be like, awesome, where do you go to church? And they say, well, I haven't been in a couple years. Their name is on the roll at some church that's never going to remove it, but they feel confident. I'm a Christian. How do I know? Well, I mean, years and years ago, my name got put in a dusty book somewhere on a shelf, and I think they haven't erased it yet. So me and God are good. You know, that's a very, very common thing, right? Um, kids who maybe people come from a, a religious family and they say, I have security with God because my family is very religious. My, my parents are very religious people. They don't know much about the doctrine of God. They, they have a shallow relationship with the church. They know little to nothing about the Christian religion. They couldn't tell you what faith and repentance is. You know, people with almost like a superstitious view of church members, membership. Well, let me just say, church membership is worthless if you're not here, you know. Uh, Church membership isn't a help if you aren't hearing the word. 
Um, the elders of the church cannot magically help you from a distance by tw- twiddling their fingers and thinking about you. Um, you need to be in the presence of the elders so that they can be in your life and correct you and so that they can encourage you. Um, you need to be around. So if, if your name's just written down, but you're not there, then, then, then what good is a church? What good is any church uh, if you just have your name jotted down, but you're not there? It, it can do nothing except maybe give you a false sense of security. And this applies to other external things in our lives that make us feel secure. Maybe you can remember things that you have done that make you feel secure. Maybe you memorized the catechism. Maybe you helped teach Sunday school at one point. Uh, Maybe you helped somebody in need. Maybe you tithe. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe you helped build the church. Maybe Maybe you haven't eaten out or shopped on a Sunday in years. Maybe you haven't kept your, maybe you've kept your nose clean your whole Christian life. Just think of all the things that you could do that make you feel secure as a Christian. And here's the problem. If you can see it and it makes you feel secure, then you have something in common with the Pharisees. They could also point to the things about themselves that made them feel secure. We're children of God. How do we know? Look where we came from. Look at our family heritage. That attitude doesn't come from a mature Heart. It comes from an ignorant, natural heart. And the Pharisees have that external obsession in droves. Now you may say, well, wait, where am I supposed to find my security if I can't find my security in myself and how, how I'm living? And the answer, of course, is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Jesus is your security. Your goodness, your behavior, your deeds, all of those things are the cherry on top. Jesus is the cake. Jesus is what you need. But see, the Pharisees have that external obsession in droves, and so their security rests in themselves and where they came from and what they do and how they live. It's not the, that's not what Jesus is calling for here. He's saying you need deep heart work. The second thing we learn from this passage is what Jesus says are the true marks of spiritual sonship. What does he say? He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the work of Abraham. He says, if God were your father, you would love me, right? So Jesus is saying that love and obedience are two marks of being a son of God. Why is this useful to us? Well, one of the commands of Scripture is that we are supposed to make our calling and election sure. That is to say that we are, we are commanded to do all we can to grow in our sense of spiritual assurance. Um, We should be fighting, we should be laboring, we should be working to see more and more that we actually are converted from the heart, that we actually are sons of God. It is not enough for us to just tell ourselves, well, I went through the motions, I got baptized, I raised my hand. Um, We're supposed to look for signs of spiritual life, look for that family resemblance. See, Jesus is looking for that family resemblance in the Pharisees, and he doesn't see it. He's, he's trying. He's squinting even. He's giving them a chance. What about you? Would Jesus look at you and see some family resemblance? Would he recognize the Father? Would he, would he recognize that faint resemblance of himself when he looks at you? Are you growing more and more into the image of Jesus or not? See, the pastor's job is, is, is not necessarily to give every professing believer a sense of assurance. Um, 
Um, my job in coming into the pulpit is not to, to make you feel secure spiritually necessarily. Because there are people in the church who, who are hypocrites and, and aren't converted. And, and for them to feel assured would be, would be deadly. If you had a hypocritical person who's not repentant, but they feel assured, that would be deadly. Because instead of being assured, they need to be warned. But a pastor who sees his duty only as assuring people who need to be warned isn't loving them. It's like a doctor that's unwilling to tell people when they're sick. See, the real goal is for the word of God to make unconverted people sense their need of Christ and to make converted people see that they already stand safe and secure and rescued in Christ forever. Those are two tasks that actually have to emerge out of the same preaching of the word. And so that means that you need a true assurance that's rooted in satisfaction with God's way of salvation and a security that is not rooted in yourself, but a security that's rooted in Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So what is the goal? That we know the truth about ourselves, even if it's a hard truth to hear. So that we know the state of our own souls. Let's, let's make our calling and election sure, because Jesus wants it for the Pharisees. And he wants it for us too. He wants us to have a well-founded conviction about ourselves and who we are. This is a hard passage. Is any time that you see people confronted by Jesus with the hardness of their own hearts, it's actually quite painful. We tend to be discouraged by passages like this if they cause us to see our own hearts. And, and I think part of the reason is that our, our default posture is one of self-focus. That is, that's how we wake up each day. We wake up thinking, who am I? What am I going to get today? What do I want for today? What will make me happy if it happens today? We tend to start off thinking about numero uno, basically. But, um, and what that means is we also start to look at our own hearts for our own hope as, our, as the basis of our own hope. But notice where Jesus drives them as we conclude here this morning. Jesus says, I am from God. Which of you convicts me of sin? So you have this passage where he's showing them the badness of their own hearts. And you just think, man, Jesus, that's rough. Why are you being so rough on these guys? But the answer is he's giving them grace right there, staring them in the eye. In their face is the sinless son of God. They, they are filled with sin. They're riddled with sin as, as we all are. And, and, and if you're looking to yourself for that hope, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble because... This whole passage, they keep trying to convince themselves that their father is who they hope he is. But Jesus has just shown them that, that the hope isn't in who their father is because their father is the devil. So he's cutting out from under them the, 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 the legs that they're standing on. Their only hope is in Jesus and who Jesus is and who, and who Jesus' father is. It's not really about them at all. It's about him. If we exclusively focus on who we are and who our Father is, we're going to be left in a self-obsessed downward spiral of hopelessness because the Bible tells us that we are, by nature, children of wrath. That's the truth about you. It's the truth about me. So don't keep self-examining and expecting that the deeper you mind, the more hope you're going to find. But isn't it always the case that if we set our eyes on Jesus and who he is, 
we will find all the hope we could ever possibly need. All of this passage is about get Jesus getting these leaders to set, take their heart, eyes off of their own hearts and their own lives and their own heritage and set their eyes on him. I am from God. Which of you convicts me of sin? He's right there and the answer is right in their face. Christian, if your gaze is always here, if your gaze is always on you, if it's always on your own heart, if you're finding all your security by doing that, then listen to the pleas of Jesus this morning and set your eyes squarely on him and trust in him so that you can know him and his father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are filled with grace. Grace sufficient for all that we need, poured out through your Son, given to us as a gift. Would you protect us from the lies and murderous intentions of Satan? Instead of turning from you and finding hope in ourselves, which is what we would like, make us a people who completely throw ourselves upon your Son and find our hope in the sinless one so we can be assured that you are Indeed, our Father. Let's pray.